Without further ado, please give a welcome to the host of the Greg Proops Film Club, Mr. Greg Proops. Hooray, hooray, once again. The Greg Proops Film Club convenes, this time uh, from Santa Monica's most salubrious cinematic palace, the Aero Theater, located right here in the awesome white people district of Santa Monica. It's so nice to be back. Uh, we've been in Los Feliz uh, for like the last six months, and uh, uh, the hipness was really getting to me. What can I tell you? Uh, thank you. I almost got a tattoo and started my own online zine and started celebrating Beltane. At one point, I considered not wearing a shirt and just carrying an iguana on my shoulder so it would substitute for my personality. So that when people met me, they would be like, oh my God, isn't he interesting? And I'd be like, yeah, but I think the iguana's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. <laughs> so it's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Your laughter. It is a comedy show, so feel free to, you know, chime in whenever you, uh, the mood takes you. I appear to have lost a pen in the vestments of my, there we are. I've got it back out here. Hooray, tonight we're watching uh, Bob Fosse's 1972 classic starring Liza Minnelli, uh, Cabaret, and I couldn't be more excited about it. We were trying to show it earlier in the year, but it is the 50th anniversary of the picture. And, um, and of course, uh, the uh, gee whiz, the 90th anniversary of when the film takes place uh, in Weimar, Germany. A lot of people are like, a sketchy on history because this is Los Angeles and yesterday doesn't really exist. Um, my God, people don't even eat here, so. Uh, yeah, people are like, I'll split a donut with you. Like, that's sad. Just have a donut on your own, won't you? But if I get fat, I'll, no one will like me and then I have to kill myself. I understand. Um, that's what LA's like. Uh, I, I get it. Uh, people say things like, do you want to split some soup? And you're like, no, no. No one splits soup, okay? Um, and uh, so I realized here in LA yesterday is a foregone conclusion. It didn't really happen uh, because there's only tomorrow and what show business is going to bring you. And uh, so uh, to hip you to what Weimar Germany was, Weimar Germany was a place where, let's see, um, there was a party and they were extraordinarily right wing. Uh, they were against civil rights. They were wildly racist. They were anti-Semitic. They tried uh, immediately uh, upon getting power, banned abortion and um, were at war with everyone else. They uh, didn't believe in freedom, uh, individual freedom. There was a mass groupthink going on, and uh, they were well-armed and organized. So it has no bearing on today whatsoever. It's like a fever dream, really. Uh, it's a fantasy film. Uh, and uh, that's why we're showing it, of course, because it, it has, a, it's a little too on the nose, let's be honest. Uh, short of showing a documentary called Orange 45, The Tyrannical Years, uh, we've substituted it with cabaret tonight because there's delightful musical numbers. Now, it's uh, always been described by lots of different people as a musical for people who hate musicals, which is one of those phrases that I just adore because it means nothing whatsoever. It's like saying music for people who hate rhythm. Um, First of all, if you hate musicals, I want to talk to you about the enormous black obsidian rock that lives where your soul is supposed to dwell. And secondly, uh, um, if you do hate musicals, I'm certain I know the reason why. Uh, one, you're homophobic. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. That's my show. Two, you're anti-Semitic because Jews wrote every musical. And uh, um, including this one tonight, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. 
And uh, three, uh, it's because people sing when they run out of words to express their emotions. When their words and dialogue can no longer express the thundering emotion that's pounding inside, the enormous river that's ready to be let loose because the dam has broken, they have said enough words, they break into song. There were birds all around, but I never heard them singing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you, right? That's what happens in musicals. Um, not in this musical. This musical uses the musical numbers, uh, almost largely kept to the Kit Kat nightclub, which is an unbelievably fantastic den of iniquity, um, done in the style of, uh, uh, well, Weimar Germany. I was going to explain what it was, but I think I did. Uh, and Otto Dieks, and uh, uh, it's peopled by reprobates, um, drug addicts, uh, transvestites, uh, hugger muggers, and uh, other uh, disreputable sorts of people who visit low dives such as this. Mm. Ironically, uh, you're told at the beginning of the movie when you visit the Kit Kat Club to leave your troubles outside. And I was considering that tonight when I realized that I had to entertain a little bit before this movie about the rising tide of fascism during a part of American history where what we're facing in 68 days is an election over the rising tide of fascism and whether we should actually use escapism and leave our troubles outside. And I decided, fuck it. Um, we're not. Um, it's, a, it's a musical that uses the music uh, not to move the plot forward so much as to reflect what's going on uh, uh, throughout the period and uh, throughout what's going on in, uh, while the picture's taking place. Uh, various events happen while people are singing uh, rather than people singing to one another, which they do not do in this movie. They do, however, uh, have bisexual awesomeness in this movie. And um, uh, I saw this picture, I'm much older than everyone here as far as I can see. I haven't taken any IDs, but I'm just guessing uh, uh, by the lack of laughter during some of the funnier jokes that I'm a little older than you. And uh, by a little, I mean a lot. And uh, I, uh, I went to pictures a lot when this picture came out. This picture came out in 1972. I was 12 years old, and these are the prime going to movies years. Uh, you'll understand that from the 60s all the way up until uh, late in the 80s, uh, first of all, you could smoke in the theater, which was awesome. But secondly, um, uh, movies cost 50 cents, then 75 cents, then $1.25, then $1.50, and then like $3 when Earthquake came out. Yeah, I'm using the movie Earthquake in as an example of cinema tonight. That's why it's the Greg Proops Film Club and not the Leonard Malton Film Club. <laughs> And uh, thank you again. Actually, Earthquake was $3.50, but it had sense around, which meant there were, they'd placed some giant speakers in front of the screen. So when the earthquake happened, they turned the speakers on and the whole theater kind of shook. Which, by the way, I saw the movie Earthquake when I was uh, growing up in San Carlos, California, the whitest place on earth, home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. Um, and having a pretend earthquake in a movie theater uh, while watching a movie about earthquakes in the state of California is not only not ironic, it's an awful idea. <laughs> it really is. It's not funny in any way um, because we're used to it. I don't know, if you've, I don't know how many people are, have lived here a long time, but you've probably been through one. Uh, and in an, uh, by one, I mean a quake. And uh, you'll, if you've ever been near glass during an earthquake, um, glass takes on a bizarre ululating effect and turns into kind of a watery thing, which is uh, upsetting when you're a child. 
because you want things to you know, either break or bend, and they don't. Uh, they go fluid, which is where the sexuality in this movie goes, because I am the king of transitions. And uh, I was taken to see the movie by my mom and dad, and I know a lot of you are like, so this movie has Nazis, drugs, violence, uh, pansexuality, uh, anti-Semitism, the rising tide of fascism, and scantily clad girls, and your parents took you to see it. The answer is yes. It was the 70s. Um, my father smoked in the car with the windows rolled up, and when we went on vacation, had a bottle of brandy under the seat that he drank out of while we drove. So he drove with his knees and smoked, and then drank out of the brandy, but we were in a station wagon, so at any point should he collide with the car in front of us, I would be thrown through the windshield and immediately to safety. <laughs> People now are like, oh my God, your parents smoked and whatnot. Here's the other thing that I'll say about 1972. We're all fucking thin, you guys. Yeah, I just fat shamed an entire generation. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, you were taken to see a lot of inappropriate movies in those days. Uh, my dad took me to see The Wild Bunch by uh, Sam Peckinpah. I think I've mentioned that before on the film club. Uh, it came out the year before this, maybe, uh, 71, I'm guessing, 70. And you've heard the expression ultraviolence as used by Malcolm McDowell in the movie uh, Clockwork Orange. Uh, Sam Peckinpah was noted for the ultraviolence in his movies. And uh, that movie, I think, really kicks the ball off because he made a bunch of regular type westerns that were elegiac and had homage to the Old West and talked about the this and that and you know white people's trauma with the world changing, which seems to be the theme of almost every movie, really, let's be honest. As I once said in an earlier uh, um, pod, uh, proofcast about the film, uh, the point of American films between uh, 1928 and 1970 was to show that everyone in America was Scottish-Irish. <laughs> John Wayne was in approximately 100 films during that period, and his name was McCain, McGuire, McTeague. Yeah, that's all. That's all you got. Scottish-Irish people were in trouble because uh, they had to deal with uh, Native Americans who were unruly uh, and wanted their land back for no reason. They had to deal with uh, uh, black people who wanted rights and stuff like that. Uh, they had to deal with women who were uppity and didn't want to just be baby-making machines. They had to deal with gay people who wanted to be acknowledged as human beings and not trod into the earth. So you can see how hard it was for Scottish, Irish, white guys during the whole first century of cinema. So then we get to the 70s. And uh, all hell breaks loose because the studio heads realize no one gives a shit anymore uh, about anything they've been talking about for the last hundred years. And that people are smoking weed and uh, people are um, wearing uh, eye makeup and uh, hot pants and they're doing whatever they wish with their lives. And that movies had to start to reflect that. Otherwise, people were going to um, go out all day and get hopped up on weed and drive around in a van and make something out of macrame that um, made the government upset. So. That's why Cabaret uh, was uh, greenlit, I think. Uh, one, it was a hit musical. It came out in the 60s. Joel Grey, who you'll see in the movie, who plays MC, and we'll touch on him in just a second here, uh, originated the role on Broadway, and Bob Fosse evidently did not want him for the movie. Now, Bob Fosse had only made one picture up till that point. It was called Sweet Charity with Shirley MacLaine, and it's quite a good picture. It's a remake of Fellini's The Knights of Cabiria. 
Uh, so it's a story about a good-hearted call girl who almost makes it on her own, but then her whole world collapses. But at the end, a child gives her a flower, so everything's okay. <laughs> and it's a tale as old as time. It really is. And uh, uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a great picture in terms of the numbers in it are obvious, obviously fantastic because Bob Fosse is one of the most distinctive director-choreographers that ever uh, trod the American stage. We all have heard of Gower Champion and Marge, his wife, and, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, oh Christ, I'm forgetting who did Oklahoma. Jennifer, who did? Agnes DeMille, thank you. Uh, Jennifer picked this movie, by the way. She picks all the movies in the film club. I think I picked one. Um, I picked Return of the Living Dead eight years ago for Halloween, and that was that. Uh, I thought it was good. Jennifer wouldn't come to that one. Uh, by the way, we're showing the Black Cat. Is it October 6th, I think, over at the Los Feliz 3, uh, or the Los Feliz 3, if you will. And uh, that's a goodie with Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And um, uh, we remember all those choreographers, but I'm in an improv group. And as you know, improv, uh, next to puns, the most glorious type of comedy. And when we do improv, and if we ever get Bob Fosse, all you ever have to do for Bob Fosse is, right? <laughs> Everybody knows exactly what you're doing at all times. You don't have to explain it. Somehow Bob Fosse's choreography has maintained its fame over the years. There's only three or four things I can think of that we do indicators for on stage that everybody still gets. Uh, William Shakespeare would be very chuffed to know that people still know who he is. Uh, and when you do Shakespeare, people still recognize it, even if no one's ever seen a Shakespeare play. All ha you have to do is go, uh, and art thou an idiot, oh, dost thou, my mouth flaps like a duck's uh, behind sliding down an icy hill backwards and would be uh, my bond. And uh, 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 Edgar Allan Poe, everyone seems to know Edgar Allan Poe still, uh, even if no one knows what he wrote or who he was. And by the way, dastardly character. I know everyone wants to feel sorry for Poe because he died young, and quite right, but he wasn't a nice person. I should save this for the Halloween one, but since we're on the topic. Um, Edgar Allan Poe was a literary critic and a very unsuccessful writer. And he spent all of his time in print hammering on all of the greats of American literature, including James Fenimore Cooper, who wrote Last of the Mohicans. Thank God James Fenimore Cooper died a full century and a half before the movie came out, because that movie takes some doing. And as you recall in the movie, they changed the character of Natty Bumpo to the name Nathaniel. I believe he's named Poe in the movie. In any case, uh, um, uh, he hammered on Cooper so hard uh, in print that James Fenimore Cooper actually addressed Edgar Allan Poe and was like, would you please stop? <laughs> uh, unlike Walt Whitman, who awesomely, when he was an old man, was visited by a young Oscar Wilde who came to America. And evidently, yeah, knocking boots till the break of dawn. That's good literature. <laughs> Walt Whitman wrote, I sing the body electric, and Oscar Wilde said, I have nothing to declare but my genius. Uh -huh. So, uh, oh, Joel Gray, ever so briefly. Uh, I don't think Fosse wanted him to play it. According to Joel Gray, and this might not be true, but well, I'm going to say it anyway, um, Bob Fosse wanted to play the MC, And you'll see when you see the character why he would want to play it. And evidently, I read Joel Gray's uh, autobiography, which I don't remember the name of. And uh, sadly, it wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey, which was an obvious choice. Much like Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography should have been called The Help. Um, thank you. I'll wait here all night if I have to. I really will. I'll wait you out. I'll wait until the movie fucking starts and still be sitting here talking. How's that fucking grab you? 
I need some action and I need it now. Um, he, uh, in his biography, says on the set one day, um, all of a sudden Fosse got it in his head that he had to do a backflip. And he said to Joel Gray, can you do a backflip? And Joel Gray, I, no, I can't do a, a standing backflip, right? You know, like Chester Conklin, whoop, right? Boom, over, like uh, uh, Simone Biles, boom. And uh, uh, no, I can't do one, Bob. And so Bob Fosse went in front of everyone on the set, I'll show you how to do a fucking backflip. And he jumped in the air and landed right on his face. And, <laughs> had to be hospitalized and taken off the set and didn't come back for several days. And when he came back, I believe the term that is often used in those situations applies to him, chastened. <laughs> chastened. Uh, Joel Gray won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in this movie. And I think it might be, in the history of cinema, the only Oscar given out to a character who does not change from the beginning to the end of the movie. His character makes no change whatsoever and has no dialogue other than when he's talking to the audience. I don't believe he speaks to another character in the movie. Do you have a cigarette? Anything like that? Nothing through the whole movie. And he got the Oscar and you'll see why. Now let's get to the crux of the matter here. Liza Minnelli. Uh, two things. One, it was filmed in Germany and Jennifer and I have been to Germany many times. Uh, uh, obviously I did something wrong in a previous life and I thank you very much uh, I like to visit a homeland uh, <laughs> uh, uh, my name is German and uh, I think uh, although as one older German man said to my wife Jennifer when we were touring a winery in Mainz Germany I knew many proofs before the war so <laughs> good times and uh, uh, if you have a chance to go to Germany, Italy is so beautiful. <laughs> it really is. And Spain, France, just lovely. Great food, uh, terrific service. People are sweet. Great sense of humor. Uh, Germany, yeah. And, uh, but the problem is I look German. I really do. I mean, I know you're looking at me going like, no, you don't. Yeah, if you were in Germany, you'd be like, you wouldn't be able to pick me out of a police lineup. There are people with giant moles on their face right here. There are people with curly hair and spectacles on all over the fucking place. Like, I, my cousins are running around the fucking joint. We would go to bars and I'd be in a suit and tie and there'd be like 17 guys that look just like me at the bar. And my wife was in hysterics the whole fucking time because she's gorgeous and, and tends to look like a Spanish dona, right? Like people will speak Spanish to her because she looks like she's uh, like, a, 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 you know, a, a high-class Spanish, high-born Spanish lady, and I look like a fucking cinematographer from, you know, Heilbronn. <laughs> I could go to a German award show and crash it. Let me put it that way, and just grab one of the awards and be like, "Schatzi, all the boys, Kahabati, ah, yeah," and people would be like, "Ah, oh, fucking hey," right? That's how much I look like a German. I don't want to. It was genetics, uh, as Liza Minnelli says, and the um, television special Liza with a Z uh, that was also directed by Bob Fosse later in the year. Blame it on Papa. Um, I blame my father for everything. My nearsightedness, all of my physical ailments, and the fact that I look like I just walked off a fucking boat and was ordering a bunch of people into a chamber. It's his fault, and uh, I always wanted to look like Marcello Mastroianni, let's be honest. Uh, a lot of you are young, you don't know who Marcello Mastroianni is, you can Google him on the way home. 
very devastatingly handsome Italian movie star of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s with enormously great hair, super sexy, had a baby with Catherine Deneuve, had affairs with Sophia Loren. Like, you, just to touch his hand would be to go places you were never gonna go. And uh, he was absolutely gorgeous. And he had a brother who was a cinematographer for, who did a bunch of movies with Fellini as well, uh, who was Fellini's cinematographer as well as other cinematographers. And his mother, Marcello Mastriani's mother, liked the brother better than him. <laughs> this is what life is all about, family. So uh, having been to Germany and having uh, seen this picture, I can assure you that it's something of a documentary. I'm joking, of course. Uh, Liza Minnelli is never more fabulous than she is in this picture. Bob Fosse directed her in this. Bob Fosse also directed her in Liza with a Z. Bob Fosse won Best Director and he beat Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather this year. And uh, he also won an Emmy for Liza with a Z and he also won a Tony all in the same year. How about those apples? And still wasn't good looking enough to play MC <laughs> in the movie. Uh, Liza Minnelli had been in a couple pictures um, and they were good, she's very good in them, but this is the picture where she takes off. Um, when you watch the movie, you'll realize it's her show. Uh, as great as all the supporting actors are, and they're all marvelous in this movie, uh, Marissa Berenson, who was a, a sort of a model a slash rich person, uh, <laughs> is in the movie and she's quite good. Uh, Helmut Grime, uh, uh, Joel Gray, as I said, they're all awesome. Liza Minnelli was born to play this on the screen. I've seen this on stage in San Francisco in a bus and truck company where Joel Gray was MC. Seen it in New York where Alan Cummings was MC at Studio 54. I've seen the stage play several times, seen the movie a million times. The movie's better. Liza Minnelli's more awesome than the plot of the play where she's kind of not that talented. In this movie, it's like, what if Liza Minnelli was playing a club no one went to is basically the plot of the movie. She's that fucking huge, she's that fucking great. Her eyes do everything, she's a wonderful actor in it. There's a neediness in her that comes off the screen and shakes you by the throat through the entire movie. And at the same time, there's an insane denial and joy of what's going on. She's aware of the cataclysmic forces that are forcing her life to be what it is in the picture. And at the same time, God damn it, she's gonna sing and dance as good as she fucking wants in the face of emotional need. And that's what makes this movie so powerful and what makes this movie her show. Bob Fosse's direction of it is absolutely perfect in so much as it's edited to within an inch of its life. This is not a movie that drifts along with lots of scenes. This is a propulsive musical, and during the scenes, the editing is propulsive. Now, there's a scene uh, coming up uh, um, after the beginning. There's a number called Mine Hair, which they stuck in the picture. Candor and Ebb stuck a couple numbers in the picture. They rearranged the musical, wrote out some boring stuff, put in a bunch of other stuff into the movie. So it's not like the stage play, so don't care. Uh, and one of them is an, a a, a ballad called Maybe This Time that they wrote for Kay Ballard, who is a comedian and singer who just passed away about a year or two ago. And um, they purloined it and put it in this movie to give Liza an emotional uh, linchpin toward the end of the picture. It's a fabulous number and you'll dig it. And then Mine Hair, they put in, it's in the first act of the movie. Now, when you see this picture, or when this, this number, um, it's lurid, it's uh, unbelievably slutty, it's fantastic. There's top hats. I mean, there's bowler hats. There's garters. Um, there's spanking, self-spanking. There's auto-spanking. Is that what we call it? <laughs> Auto-flagellation. 
Um, and it's absolutely stunning. And in my opinion, and I'm going to go out there because it's the Greg Proops Film Club and not the people who wandered into a theater in Santa Monica Film Club, <laughs> although we all share it, uh, that it's the best goddamn fucking five minutes Bob Fosse ever put on fucking screen. And it's exultant in how awesome Liza Minnelli is in the number. Um, I should end there, but I'm not a good host. <laughs> Just to put this in context for you, because this context is so important. I don't like saying things are the best or things that are the uh, worst, even though I just did. In this year, Tarkovsky made Solaris, Bergman Cries and Whispers, Hitchcock Frenzy, Joe Mankiewicz uh, um, Sleuth, Martin Ritt made Sounder, which is an astonishing motion picture, um, John Waters Pink Flamingos, Peter Bogdanovich, What's Up Doc? Gordon Parks, uh, the famous black photographer for Life Magazine, was given a, a directorial post and made Superfly this year. Um, Elaine May made The Heartbreak Kid. Michael Ritchie made The Candidate, which is a, a, a political movie. Um, uh, Perry Hensel made The Harder They Come, the uh, reggae picture with Jimmy Cliff which might have the best soundtrack of any motion picture of all time, because it's all reggae, and uh, it's just an amazing movie. And Fellini made Roma. So, and Bunuel made Discreet Trauma and the Bourgeoisie. So we're talking about every single director that you're going to talk about in film class. I'm sure Lena Wutmerler made a film this year as well. This was only a partial list that I even took down. Um, people talk about 1939 because The Wizard of Oz and Stagecoach came out that year. 1939 can bend over on a chair and self-flagellate itself. 1972, and I, I didn't even mention it, The Godfather was best picture and lost every other Oscar to Cabaret. Except Brando, who refused his Oscar and had an actress named Sashin Littlefeather come out and accept it for him and talk about the plight of Native Americans, which was an astonishing moment in American show business history. And as you know, Hollywood takes these things in stride. <laughs> Not only did everyone react poorly to Sashin Littlefeather saying the truth about America was that a genocide against Indians is what had been depicted in cinema for 100 years. John Wayne was shit-faced backstage and evidently wanted to beat her up and had to be restrained. Thank you for laughing. I thought it was funny too, but everyone <laughs> takes everything very seriously here. <laughs> no, it's not funny that he wanted to beat her up, but I couldn't write a screenplay where a woman wearing an Indian outfit went on stage to accept an Oscar for Marlon Brando and John Wayne went, fuck that, I'm gonna beat her up because it really fucking happened. And what's about to happen right now is pure awesome from 1972 with Liza Minnelli, I give you Bob Fosse's Cabaret.